like to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're back. As we return to our study of Genesis this morning, I want to remind you of um, why we're doing it. Sometimes when you, you start out on a journey, you know you're going to take a walk through the woods. And then you get into the forest and you start looking at the trees and you kind of forget the path you were on and how you started and where you were headed. And I want to just kind of take a step back and get the overview because uh, it's important to know why we're doing what we're doing. And, and one of the reasons it is not is to simply educate us. You know, the Bible is not a book that was written to inform us. It was written to transform us. And we need to recognize that God reveals truth with the intention of changing our lives. So as we study the various doctrines that are revealed in these opening chapters of Genesis, we need to, we need to remember that they're not there simply to give us interesting insight. But they're there to reveal to us the character and the person and the nature of God who He is, who we are, how we relate, what's gone wrong, uh, why we need a Savior, why we need this thing to be straightened out, why tornadoes rip through Tuscaloosa, Alabama and level homes. We need to understand those kinds of things so that we can have a, a, a rightful view of life, so that we can put it uh, in a framework of understanding that is biblical. So we're looking at all the teaching of the Bible that actually has its seed, its beginning, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I'm doing that for the reason that ultimately we can understand why it's important not to neglect this section of Scripture and why it's important to, to accept it at face value. It's not a fanciful story or somebody's ancient uh, mythology about how the world came to be. It is the revelation of God to us of how it did come to be, so that we can put everything else in the context. We sang some interesting songs this morning, and uh, songs that talk to us about intimacy with God, about drawing near to God, getting to know God. I was, uh, this this past week... Uh, looking at a paper that was given me uh, the other day, and in it, uh, a local Chicago priest was explaining what was going on with the beatification or the blessedness of Pope John Paul II, who is no longer with us, by the way. But they, uh, they brought him back out so that they could uh, beatify him, and uh, that's the next step toward uh, making him a saint. Once they can come up with another verifiable miracle that he has performed uh, from the afterlife, then he can become a saint. And this priest was explaining that the goal of this whole process uh, of going through these um, rituals and these experiences of of life that begins now and continues in the afterlife, that the goal is to become a friend of God. And a saint, to the Catholic mind, is one who has become God's friend. I read the article with interest and also with sadness. It made me sad because I realized that for millions of Catholics, and in fact for millions of Christians and millions of people the world over, the capability of being a friend of God has somehow escaped them. The capacity to know Him intimately now, to be His friend, to call him daddy, to curl up in his lap and pour out our heart 
and be uh, joining with him in his work in a way that accomplishes his purpose to be the friend of God is possible now. And it does not require you to achieve a certain level of holiness. It requires you to have a certain level of trustfulness. And that friendship with God is actually made possible by the Holy Spirit. He is the one who brings us near. He is the one who communicates to us the Father's heart and the Son's nearness. He is the one who lives in us and manifests the presence of God in our lives. And so this morning, as we come to Genesis 1-3 to to study the nature and characteristics of the Holy Spirit that are revealed in these opening chapters, they actually speak to us very practically of our relationship with God that is mediated and made possible by the Holy Spirit as He draws near to us and brings us into communion with the Father and with the Son. And as we uh, go back to Genesis chapter 1, there are two images that are, we are introduced to in these opening chapters that remain consistent throughout the Scripture. They're pictures of God the Holy Spirit that the Bible goes back to uh, again and again. One of those images is the image of a dove. It's interesting that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, if you'd like to look there with me, let me read those for you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. By the way, we've passed by all of these things before in our study. But kind of like scanning the terrain and then coming back to focus on individual aspects. Now we're coming this morning to focus on the Holy Spirit. We've, we've looked at this before, but I want to focus here a little bit today. And you recall from our previous studies that the word here is like brooding. The Holy Spirit was brooding upon the face of the waters. That's something that birds do with their young. As they hover, as they nurture, as they uh, gather their brood, as they care for their young. That's something that, that a mother bird will do. In the Gospels, we're introduced to the Holy Spirit for the first time after the brief announcement by the angel that that which is uh, formed in Mary is out of the Holy Spirit. The next time we're introduced to Him is when Jesus is baptized. And all four Gospels record that the Holy Spirit descended upon Him like a dove. So in Genesis 1, we have this image of the Holy Spirit that conjures up the imagery of some kind of mother bird hovering, brooding over her young And then in the Gospels, we are immediately introduced to the nature of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove. And in one place, Jesus tells us, going to the character of a dove, He tells us that we are to be wise as serpents, going to the character of someone else, and gentle as doves. There is something about that imagery that is intended to evoke in us a gentleness from the Lord. As we look at the the term, I was thinking of moving in a different direction. I'm coming back and going the other way first, in case you were wondering what was going on in my mind there. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. 
Genesis chapter 2 gives us a picture of the early creation in turmoil. It is dark, it is tumultuous, it is covered with water, uh, it, it is, the, the sense is that it's churning, that it's unresolved, uh, that things are happening. Um, and then we're told that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the surface of the water. He is the one who is about to bring the calm. He is the one who is about to begin to shape this formless and void earth into something that makes sense. He is the one who is about to calm these churning seas and bring the quiet and the creation and the beauty and the glory out of what we have. The Hebrew word that is translated hover is rakaf. I've given that to you in letter A of number 2. And besides hovering, it actually means to grow soft or to relax. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. When you think of God... What do you think of? What images come to mind? How do you see his character? When you think of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what do you think of? What do you think of when you think of the Father? What do you think of when you think of the Son? Savior, Redeemer. We think of Him as He came in the Incarnation, walked upon the earth. Jesus, nonetheless, said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. What do you think of when you think of the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm going to take you somewhere, and I want to plant your feet firmly in solid ground before we go there, because I don't want you to get into error, okay? Because heresy is truth out of balance. It's when you take the truth and you, and you go too far with it, and now you're on a tangent. You remember from geometry what a tangent is? You have a circle, you have a line. A tangent is when the line intersects the circle in one point. There's one point they have in common, the circle and the line. From that point on, the circle is moving away from the line... <laughs> And the line is called a tangent. And so there's a point where truth lies. And you need to rest there. You don't want to go off on the tangent, because after a while you won't be anywhere near the circle any longer. You're going to be way out there in left field. So I'm going to take you some places this morning that, uh, that move us out there, but I want to be sure that you're firmly anchored in truth. God is God. Okay? The Father is not different than the Son who is different from the Holy Spirit in terms of character. The character of the Father, the character of the Son, the character of the Holy Spirit are one. All three persons are God in unity. And so you cannot say that the Father has this attribute but the Holy Spirit has a different attribute. They have the same attributes. And yet, when you look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we find that those attributes tend to emerge more strongly in one person or another. For example, and I found this very interesting, can you think of a time in the Bible when God the Father was angry? You can think of dozens of times, can you not, throughout the Old Testament, when God was angry. Uh, sometimes that anger manifested itself in dreadful ways. I would not have been one of the sons of Korah. I would not like to have been one of the sons of Korah when the wrath of God opened up the earth and they fell into the hole. 
That was not a, a good day for them. Can you think of a time in the Scripture when the Lord Jesus Christ was angry? He was angry with the Pharisees on more than one occasion. But the most vivid example stands out in, in my mind when he cleansed the temple, not once but twice, driving out the, the money changers with the cord of whips. I mean, good grief, that's a pretty vivid anger. Can you think of a place in the Bible where the Holy Spirit is angry? The answer to that is no. <laughs> because there is no place in the Bible where he is ever said to be angry. I was uh, first alerted to this by A.B. Simpson and his work on the Holy Spirit, but not trusting A.B. Simpson entirely. Not that I distrust him, but I'm a good Berean like you should be. And when a teacher tells me something that, that sounds, uh, wow, I've never thought of that in those terms, you need to go check it out. So I checked it out. I used this Bible software package that I have where I can put words together to see if they ever occur together anywhere in the Bible. And I put angry and spirit and angered and spirit and wrath and spirit and vengeance and spirit. I tried every way I could think of to come up with the Holy Spirit manifesting anger. And there's not one place in the Bible where he does. Don't you find that interesting? Because God certainly feels anger. But the Holy Spirit is never said to be angry. He is said to grieve. He is said to grieve. When we wound him by our behavior, he grieves. There's something about that that calls to my heart. Because I can make him sad. But I am never said to make him angry. And, and that's interesting to me because if you're a child of God and you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit... Wherever you go, you take Him. And whatever you see or do or hear or watch, you take Him. And He is with you. And you can make Him sad. He is, in the very nature of the word of verse 2, as He is hovering over the surface of the churning waters, He is gentle. He is soft. He is restful. He is the one who brings tranquility. In fact, He is called the Comforter. He is the one who soothes when our hearts are troubled and our lives are filled with churning chaos. It is the Holy Spirit who brings the soothing. He is the oil that is the soothing balm that is poured out for healing. He is the refreshing water. All of these are images of the Holy Spirit. The other thing that I want to say about Him, and again, I want your feet firmly anchored in who God is. There is a reason why the Bible refers to God throughout in the masculine gender. I'm not sure I fully understand all of the reasons, but I know that that is the way that he has revealed himself. I find it very disturbing that contemporary translations are trying to get around that by becoming more neutered gender or by switching up the terms he and she. And, and actually perverting the language of Scripture in order to accommodate the mentality of our time. The Holy Spirit, when He first inspired the Scripture, had available to Him feminine pronouns and feminine nouns. He did not use them. And there are reasons for that. And so, God, throughout Scripture, is revealed to us in masculine gender. But remember that I told you in creation that when God made man, He made him male and female. Genesis chapter 5 makes it very clear that mankind who is made in the image of God is male and female. And while it does not take a married couple to fully reflect the character of God, no couple 
just like no person can do that in its entirety, it does require both men and women on the planet to reflect the character and nature of God. The masculine gender is not up to the task, neither is the feminine gender. It takes both gender to reflect the full-orbed character of God. Because He is one, and we are made in His image, and all of the attributes of femininity are just as much a part of the nature of God as are the attributes of masculinity. And then it is interesting, now are your feet firmly planted in truth? Because I don't want you to get off here. But having said that, may I say to you, that the Holy Spirit most often communicates those attributes that we think of as being feminine. He is the comforter. He is tender. He is gentle. Now, men, I hope that you're not so stove up that you can't be those things. When the fruit of the Spirit comes into your life, He should also make you like that. But nonetheless, in our own minds, when we think of nurturing, when, when we think of the place of comfort, most often it is mother's lap, leaning against mother's breast. That is the place of security that many people think of. I realize I'm always at risk when I say that. I was saying that in the first hour. One person was vigorously shaking their head. They had not had a very good experience with mom. And sometimes when you are speaking about the fatherhood of God, there are people who are vigorously resisting that because they didn't have a very good experience with dad. Men and women fail miserably, and sometimes they do horrible things to their children, but that does not change the way God intended it to be, nor does it change the the validity of, of the type. The Holy Spirit is the mothering, nurturing characteristic of God that we often see. He is the one who brings life and gives birth. When you think of the new birth, who is accomplishing the birthing process? Is it not the Holy Spirit who brings people to new life in the new birth? Does He not regenerate? Is He not the one who begins to nurture with the sincere milk of the Word? Does He not begin to to grow up the one who has come to Christ by tenderly feeding and gently uh, caring for and caressing and guiding and teaching. Is that not His role in the church? God wants us to know that the Holy Spirit is for us one called alongside to give us comfort and encouragement and refuge, and tranquility, and peacefulness, and rest. He is the one who speaks to us of all of those soft and tender qualities of God that are mediated to us in His person. Don't be afraid to think rightly about Him. Just be sure that you're still firmly attached to that point in the circle. And you're not off on a tangent. But you're anchored in truth. The other image that comes out in Genesis, and it comes out throughout these three chapters, that comes out through the rest of Scripture, is that the Holy Spirit is the wind of God. He is the breath of God. He is the the breeze, the air. He is the atmosphere, if you please, in which we live and move and have our being. 
And when we are introduced to him in verse 2 of chapter 1, the the literal translation of verse 2 is, the wind or breath of God was moving across the surface of the deep. And very soon we're introduced to the fact that it is the wind or breath of God that is breathed out into the nostrils of the shaped Adam. And he comes to life because the Spirit of God has come into him. And then we find that God is walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And I told you a few weeks ago that that was literally the the breeze of the day. And that time of special communion with God was mediated by the breeze of the day. That's not an accident. He is still the one who helps us pray. He is still the one who refreshes us. He is still the one who ushers us into the presence of God. And when we don't know what to say, He is the one who uh, prays through us and intercedes on our behalf, even at times when we have no words. It is the Holy Spirit who is at work in us to bring us into the presence of God. This is His work. But we also find that He is present in the fall of Adam and Eve as they sin and turn away from God. And what is their immediate feeling? Their immediate experience? They are ashamed and they hide from God. And we find that Jesus says the ministry of the Holy Spirit is going to be to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that He is still doing what He was doing there in that moment. He is the one who prompts the inner person to recognize that they have sinned and offended a holy God. He is like the refreshing breeze in the cool of the day. The comforting refreshment in the presence of God. The helper, the restorer the energizer, the life-giver to our mortal bodies. Friends, the Holy Spirit is the one who is at work in us to produce in us the work and the presence of God. And then I ask myself the question, what is His work in creation? If we see Him in these chapters, in that image of a dove hovering and mothering and nurturing, and we see Him like the wind, and the breeze, and, and the breath of God, bringing life. What does He actually do in creation? When you think of the work of the Father and the work of the Son, what do you know? God said, let there be light. And there was light. The Father initiates. The Son is the Word that is spoken. We learned that from John chapter 1. And we learned that in the last number of weeks as we studied the person of the Son. He is the Word of God. When God uh, thinks the thought and speaks it, He is the Word of God that, that engages the action. So that everything was made through Jesus Christ. And without Him, Nothing was made that has been made. But what was the work of the Spirit? I believe that His work was actually the shaper, the crafter, here on the planet. Hands on. He is the hand of God doing the actual activity. Lest you think I've pulled something totally out of the air. Let me remind you in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus has cast out demons. And the Pharisees have come to him and accused him of doing this by the power of the devil. They're saying, you're doing this by Beelzebub. They're trying to discredit him. That's where he gives that famous warning about the the unpardonable sin. And casting uh, derision upon what they recognize to be the hand of God. And he says this very interesting phrase. If I, by the finger of God, 
cast out demons. The finger of God. He actually calls the Holy Spirit the finger of God. And as we go on and move further into Jesus' own explanation of His activity, everything He did on this earth, He did by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as He was about to leave, He explained to His disciples, I am going to give you the same Spirit that I have had. And when He comes upon you, you will do the same works that I have done. Because I'm going to go to My Father and I'm going to give you My Spirit. He's been with you. He's going to be in you. He is going to be the one who does the works through you. And so, we learn that the Holy Spirit is actually the person of the Trinity that is accomplishing and effecting the the transformation, the work. He is the one shaping this world. He is the one calling into existence the, the, the animal life and the plants. He is the one who scooped up the clay and shaped the man and poured Himself into His life to become a living soul. The Holy Spirit is the hand of God at work. How can I illustrate this? I thought of uh, an electric motor hooked to a battery with a switch. And then I thought about an automobile. And again, these analogies will break down in about ten seconds if you take them too far. But let me just kind of help you get a handle on, on the Trinity at work to create. If you have an electric motor hooked to a battery and a switch is in the circuit, you throw the switch... The power from the battery flows through the circuit. The motor starts up to perform the activity. If you think of the Father as the initiator, and Jesus Christ as the resident power, because He says all power, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. And if you think of the Holy Spirit as the motor, as the Father takes the initiative, the, the, the Son releases the power and the Holy Spirit begins to spin the work into reality. If you think of it as an automobile, when I get in mine, nothing happens until I put the key in the ignition turn it on. You can't move the gear lever. You can't turn the steering wheel. Nothing happens at all. But once I get in and turn the key on, everything is freed up. The initiation of action has released the car. The engine starts. The drivetrain engages. There's the work of the sun, and then the wheels, if the wheels aren't on the ground, the car's going nowhere. But the wheels in contact with the pavement actually are what allows my car to go down the road. The Holy Spirit is the one most closely engaged with the activity. He is hands-on. He is the rubber meeting the road. He is the motor turning the activity. And Jesus says He is the energizer of the church. He was active in creation and actually shaping the events that brought about this universe. And He is the one reshaping them into the church of the living God. Jesus said to His disciples, He has been with you. He will be in you. I want you to know this morning that it's important that we understand how the work of the Holy Spirit works in our lives in the church. Because when Jesus appeared in the upper room after the resurrection, the first time He met with His disciples, you all know this because I've said it about 500 times, on purpose. Let me see, how many Sundays have I been here? A thousand and five. How many is that? Fifty-two times ten is five hundred and twenty. Times two is a thousand. Fifteen hundred times. Okay, so probably a five hundred times. I've said this. Okay, but I want it to stick. <laughs> I want you to get it. That in the upper room, as Jesus met with his disciples after the resurrection, he breathed on them and said, "Receive the Holy Spirit." He had said, He has been with you, He will be in you. When did He come into them? In the upper room, that first morning of the resurrection, He came into the disciples. 
That's when they were born again. That's when they were regenerated. That's when their temples, having been cleansed, the Shekinah glory, presence of God, came to live inside of them. When, when you receive Jesus Christ, you know, and we try to explain this, and I've been told don't say this to kids because they, they have a hard time with it. Actually, I think anybody has a hard time with it when you think about it. Take Jesus Christ into your heart. How do you do that exactly? You know, let him come into your life. How does he do that exactly? How does he come into your heart? Well, okay, but how does he do that? You know, what does, does he walk in? Do you have to have open heart surgery? How does he get in there? Now, do you have this little Jesus living in your heart? I mean, how does this work? But actually, when you invite Christ to be your Lord and Savior, and you turn from your sin, and you turn to the living God, and you receive by faith the atoning payment that He has made for your sin on the cross, and you say, Lord Jesus, I want You in my life. What we mean by that is, we want to come close to God. We want to to begin to walk with God. We want the involvement of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. This little man from heaven doesn't come and, you know, live in our ventricle. But what does happen, according to the Scripture, is the Holy Spirit actually comes into our bodies. Just as our human spirit resides in there somewhere, the non-material part of us, the Holy Spirit joins with our spirit. And we are born again to a living hope. He comes to live inside of us. He brings us close to God. He is the one who cries out from within, Abba, Father, Daddy, my God. He is the one who gives us faith to believe. He is the one who is active, hands-on, feet on the ground, doing the work. Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then He said, but don't try to do anything yet. Do not do a thing until you have been endued with power from on high. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise from the Father. Because He said, I will pour out upon you of My Holy Spirit. And so those born-again, regenerated disciples, the 120 of them, met in the upper room, waiting on the promise of the Father. Please get it in your minds. Please connect with this. Study the Scripture like those good Bereans to see if I'm telling you the truth. Those men and women of God were born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the upper room before the day of Pentecost but they were not ready to do the work until the Holy Spirit came upon them like a rushing, mighty wind. Not a destructive one, but a powerful one, filling the place where they prayed. All of a sudden, clothing them with power from on high. And Peter, who had just days earlier said, you know what, fellas, I'm done with this. I'm going back fishing. I failed. My life is a, is a wreck. This whole thing has, has uh, disillusioned me. And I'm not worthy. And now he is suddenly clothed with power from on high. And as the people in the streets hear the commotion and say, these people are drunk. It's Peter who stands up and says, Ah, no, this is that which was spoken of by Joel. And he begins to preach a message, and all of a sudden, 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. What is the difference? Friends, there are many believers today, truly born again, men and women of God, who have been indwelt and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, sealed unto the day of redemption by His presence in their lives. 
Do you realize that that is part of His work? God the Father places within us the Holy Spirit as a deposit and a guarantee of our ultimate eternal redemption. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 1 and then in chapter 4. That we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 4 he says, Do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. That is part of the new birth. And there are born again men and women of God today who have the Spirit of God living inside of them, but they are failing miserably in their Christian life. They are failing miserably in their battle with sin. They are failing miserably in their effort to be effective witnesses and disciple-makers because they have no power. Because even though He lives in them, they are living out of their own resources. They're trying to do it themselves. Jesus said, without Me, you can do nothing. But they're trying to do it without Him. They mean well. They have every intention of honoring God. They're trying to keep a holy lifestyle. They're trying to keep the rules. They're trying to witness. They're trying to share their faith. And they're not succeeding. And you say, what's missing? Jesus said, don't attempt this. Unless you have been clothed, not just indwelt, but covered. You need to be clothed with power from one high. You need the Holy Spirit to come upon you and empower you. Because He is the one who gets the job done. He is hands on, feet on the ground. He is the one who does the work. Jesus said, when my Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. You're going to be able to go every place and and witness for me, and people are going to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and they're going to be born again. Without the Spirit of God, you can witness until you're blue in the face. You can argue. You can reason. You can provide all kinds of apologetics. You can seek to persuade your friends over a thousand cups of coffee. And you're never going to persuade them to be a follower of Jesus Christ and be born again. Because that is not an intellectual transaction. Don't misunderstand. They must understand enough of the Gospel to embrace Jesus Christ. But you will never argue anyone into the kingdom. And should you ever succeed on the surface of it, you will not have a born-again person. You will simply have someone who has adopted Christian philosophy as a way they're going to try to live. But they will not be born again. By the way, you can't even scare them into the kingdom of God. If you could scare people into the kingdom of God, everyone would already be saved because Jesus had more to say about hell than any other person in the Bible. And He was still surrounded by unbelievers. And you can use emotional pull and tug and you can try to corner people and you you can try to to, to, to uh, frighten them and you can do anything you want to do and all you will get in the end is someone who has an emotional softening. Every once in a while I have a conversation with my brother where he says, Paul, you really need to give an invitation. I mean, we grew up Southern Baptist and you always had an invitation at the end of the service. He'd say, Paul, you really need to give an invitation. You've got to invite people to come and make a decision. And uh, we disagree there. Because I grew up watching people walk the aisles and walk the aisles and walk the aisles and never change. I saw people go time and time again during revival meetings to rededicate their lives and never change. You know? And I began to feel that that was not the solution to the problem. I don't disparage invitations. I think that they are effective and powerful in the right context. But Billy Graham himself, who probably made that form of trusting Christ more popular than any other evangelist on the planet, 
admitted that perhaps only 10% of those who came forward during his crusades actually had a transformational experience with God. And I read Martin Lloyd-Jones, who gave an example. He said, I met a man one day on the bridge who was a drunkard, and everyone in town knew it. And we were walking across the bridge, and I came to him, and he said, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, if you had given an invitation yesterday, I would have come to Christ. And he said to this known drunkard, if you would have been repentant and ready to come to Christ, you would do so with or without an invitation from me. Because when you have an encounter with the living God, he is transformational. My point is that you and I are called upon to be witnesses, but it is not our responsibility to make converts. We are called upon to be disciple makers, but we can only disciple those who are born again. The others aren't going to pay any attention. And the new birth is not something we can do. And the conviction of sin is not something we can affect. And causing new life to happen in front of our eyes is not something we have the capacity to perform. It is only God who can bring life. And it is the Holy Spirit's work to regenerate. For this reason, we should do more praying than we do talking. Now, you did not hear me say you shouldn't talk. I just said you need to pray more than you talk. Because for all of the talking, it is the Holy Spirit who is going to drive the message home. He is the one who does the work. Are you conscious this morning of depending on the Holy Spirit to do the work? Do you know that you need His power? Are you resting in His presence? Do you understand His ministry and role in your life? Jesus said, I will not leave you alone, but I will give you another comforter. Even the Spirit of truth who will be with you. He will teach you all the things that I tried to say and you didn't get. just went right by you. He will bring it to your remembrance and He will drive it home. It is the Holy Spirit who, when you pick up this word, is the difference between a dead letter and a living word. It is the Holy Spirit who will explain to you the Scriptures if you are open to His work in your life. It is the Holy Spirit who helps you to pray. It is the Holy Spirit who comforts you when you are beat down and discouraged and depressed and sad and lonely. It is the Holy Spirit who encourages you when you don't feel like you can keep going. It is the Holy Spirit who literally strengthens you when you have no energy. For if the Spirit of Him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will give life to your mortal bodies. And we see all of this work of the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Crafting, shaping, effecting, creating, energizing, empowering, enlivening. He does that work there as he does through the rest of Scripture. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he does so by the hand of the Holy Spirit. When we speak of him, the Holy Spirit, it is his nature to point us to Jesus. In fact, Jesus said when he comes, he will not speak of himself, but he will point to me. So that's what he does. But I think sometimes we have gone too far in the church and neglecting to talk about who he is and what he does. I was probably uh, 17 or 18 years old, already called to preach and studying the scriptures in a very serious way before I stopped calling him and it. No thanks to the King James Bible. And I kind of grew up thinking of the Holy Spirit as like the force. But he is a person. 
He is the presence of God in your life, empowering and equipping. Father, I pray this morning that as we consider the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we are introduced to Him in the very first verses of Genesis, and He has been with us here on the planet, actively working, nurturing, hovering still, He has been among us. Now, once again, because of your death, Lord Jesus, on the cross and your glorious resurrection, he is able to indwell us. And because you have poured him out upon the church, he is able to empower us. Lord, we come to you this morning and ask that we will go from this place today thinking differently about the Holy Spirit. That when we need to snuggle up close to you and be hugged and comforted, we will recognize that he is the one who mediates that sense from Almighty God. When we need power, may we recognize that resting in Him brings the endowment of power from on high. May we understand that as we pray, He ushers us into Your presence. Lord, I pray that our lives would be changed as we think rightly about the work of the Holy Spirit and His presence in our lives. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.